0: Fast Forward Productions, the women are speaking.
1: Our vision overall is to farm in the image of the forest and to remediate the toxins that pollute our souls and our society and our soil, whether that's chemical leaching in our waterways or white supremacy and the capitalism and colonialism that it's feeding. We see all those as related to one another. We're trying to learn from the trees to suck out these toxins so we can actually be who we are and who we need to be. The trees are showing us how to do that.
0: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come
2: cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to the good dirt podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome new listeners. Welcome old listeners. Welcome young listeners, everyone. (laughs) If you have never heard an episode of the good dirt, you're in for a treat. If you have and you were sent here by someone else, send them our love. We're just so glad that you're here. Did you guys know that we have a voicemail? We do. And we really like to hear from you. We also like getting emails from you. Trust me, you guys, if you write in or if you call into our voicemail, I'll give you the number in just a second. We see all of these messages and they mean so much to us. And I want to share this sweet note that we got from a listener, Lydia, the other day after our bonus wedding episode published. Lydia says, listening to your podcast this afternoon, I wanted to share our wedding story. My parents have a large property that was once a working farm and we wanted to get married there. We rented chairs locally and my best friend's brother had a party tent he was willing to let us use in case of rain. We kept it small with only immediate family and our closest friends, 25 people in total. My husband's aunt is an ordained minister, so she performed the ceremony. I grew some flowers and bulk ordered what I couldn't grow and did all my own arrangements and bouquets and boutonnieres. I made pedophores instead of a wedding cake, and we served hors d'oeuvres on compostable bamboo plates. My husband and I were established, owned a home together, and were in our mid-30s and didn't need any wedding gifts. So we asked if people wished to do so, that they make a donation to an animal charity in our names instead. Lydia, thank you for sharing your amazing wedding story such a great example of how sweet and simple it can be. We love hearing from you. We just
0: love the emails and we just love the voicemails. So yeah, we'd like to get some more of both. The voicemail number is 443-459-1950.
2: That's 443-459-1950. And you can call and leave us a voicemail. And we'd love to play it over the air. So that would be fun. You could hear yourself. Anyways, Mom, how are you doing today? What are you up to? What's going on? Well,
0: another beautiful spring day here. And I'm really excited because today, as of the day of this recording, today, not when you'll be hearing this, but the moon is in Cancer and it is a waxing moon. That means it's a very, very good planting day, according the tradition of planting by the signs. This was a method that was practiced by a lot of the old timers that lived around when I grew up in the 60s and 70s in East Tennessee, Southern Appalachia. It was pretty commonly practiced around that time and I would hear about these things about you know planting in the arms or planting in the feet each of the zodiac signs is associated with a part of the body and people had a method of doing it so that their garden would grow in abundance so I didn't listen to much of it back then, but now that I'm an adult and have my own garden, and I love gardening so much, I'm really interested in it. And I'm really interested in passing the tradition along, learning as much as I can about it. There's not that many people left that practice it anymore, but I have a few resources. And so I'm doing that. And so today, As I said, the moon is in Cancer and it's a really good planting day. So I hope after this, you too, Emma, will get outside and plant some seeds and maybe transplant some things around and get your garden going for this season. I think this is especially relevant for today because our guest today is also from Appalachia. He grew up in East Tennessee. Isn't that something? And mom, where can people go look to check out like where the moon is? And
2: as you just said, there's not a ton of information on it, but is there one place you can point people to? Oh,
0: yes. I'm glad you asked that, Emma. Where do I find it? I go by the old farmer's almanac and I check it every morning. I check sunrise, sunset. I see where the moon is in the zodiac and I plan my garden around it. Now, this is just one system. There are other systems. There's biodynamic gardening. There's phenology, all those things. Also interesting. They're all a little bit different. There's some overlap. but There's a lot of differences as well. And I want to get on here on the podcast and talk about all this a little more. It's so interesting. So I'll make myself accountable and say, you can expect a bonus episode or two coming up that talk about some of these things in a little more detail. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. So yes, our guest today, Jonathan McRae is a caretaker at Silver Run Forest Farm, which is a riparian nursery and folk school located in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia focusing on agroforestry, watershed health, and restorative justice.
2: Jonathan helps tend the land there and teaches classes and workshops and is a member of the Soul Fire Farm Speakers Collective, where he's co-facilitated Uprooting Racism in the Food System trainings. Jonathan loves the culture of land care and healthy community and supports that love with experience and education in agroecology and agroforestry, ecological design, soil health, plant propagation, and watershed restoration. We felt an
0: immediate connection to Jonathan when we learned that he grew up in East Tennessee, like me, and he carries his deep affection for his Appalachian roots into his life and his work with the land. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, pardon the pun, talking about the work at Silver Run Forest Farm and so many topics related to that. We enjoyed every minute of it, and we think you will too. So here's Jonathan McRae of Silver
2: Run Forest Farm.
1: Jonathan McRae, and I'm a farmer and facilitator living in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I grew up in East Tennessee in the Appalachian Mountains, Central Appalachia, but I've been here kind of in the hinterlands of the Ridge and Valley subsection of the Great Appalachian Valley for a little over 10 years. You know, I'm one of a couple people with Silver Run Forest Farm, my partner, Cornelius Steppe, since his breeding, he wasn't able to make it to the call, but and trusted me to speak on our behalf, and I was excited for it. Silver Run Forest Farm is a riparian nursery and a folk school rooted in love and living soil. We do a whole bunch of different kinds of things, but but a lot of it, speaking for myself, Cornelius would give slightly different answers given his experience, but just growing up in East Tennessee and Appalachia and seeing the results of deeply extractive economic system on the mountains and on the forest, and whether that was mountaintop removal or clear cutting, and the effect that they had on the health of people and place, and then spending time working overseas. I worked for quite a while in Israel and Palestine and also in Mozambique before coming back to the U.S. And just seeing and learning from groups of people and deep-rooted cultures that were attuning to their place and like the incredible reverence was a, a redirection for me to figure out what it was like to take responsibility for my life and my history here in the place that I grew up. And a lot of the forest farm just comes out of our deep love of trees, like we love trees and have grew up climbing in trees and playing around them and learning old myths and folk tales about trees and when i kind of realized or learned from others like oh i could grow these and all the food and medicine and firewood and solder and building material and all the like land loving benefits that come out of trees a lot of things just came out of that love that actually connects to my childhood
0: i can relate so much to that feeling Appalachia is a part of you and you wanted to return and dig deeper into that part of your personal self. Somehow feels like it's in my DNA sort of for the listener. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the riparian nursery?
1: Yeah, that word riparian means growing along a waterway. So whatever size or shape of waterway that could be a creek to a spring to a stream to a river, but it's kind of the description of the ragged strip of plants that grow along a waterway in order to hold the soil and to filter and clean the water and to shade the stream, all the different benefits that provides. And we also kind of love the fact that riparian comes from a Latin word that means bank, which is, you know, about the bank of a stream, like a stream bank, but also just the kind of playful image of a different kind of investment (laughs) and a different way of storing and circulating wealth. And so for us, that's kind of a big piece of the riparian nursery It's like how we are we're banking in a different way. We're thinking about wealth. Differently.
0: Tell us about the situation there, the land, and how Silver Run Forest Farm ended up being there. And do you own the land? Is it leased? How, how does that work?
1: Yeah. We have two acres that we're tending that we have a deed to. My partner, Kristen, and I own it. And we live here with our almost one-year-old. We'll be one in a couple of weeks. So we've lived on this land for a little over three years, but we got started just in Harrisonburg, which is a nearby town in backyards and a kind of collection of backyards that friends had along a different stream called Black's Run through the urban area of Harrisonburg. There was a community education center, sustainable living center, supportive home for friends who have been locked up or kicked out, have lived on the streets, folks that we know who have trying to find safe refuge from war zones. So we had a community center called Bine and Fig that I helped start in Harrisonburg. That's growing near downtown, right along this stream called Black's Run. And that's kind of where we started. I had helped start this place called Bine and Fig. Cornelius had also worked there. That's how we met and kind of gravitated toward each other and our mutual love of trees and Land loving economies and cultures that have deep roots and movements for justice that try to rearrange things so it's actually possible to have all those things. And so we were just thinking a lot about stream restoration for Blacks Run. That's been a very degraded, polluted stream. And then we could do that by planting through to medicine. So that was a big piece for us was really wanting to take care of actually that specific location and a lot of what the forest farm we we had. We're looking to get access to public land along the stream that couldn't be developed because it was in the floodplain. And so we were thinking, imagine like an edible park, neighborhood park and an arboretum that was going to be along a bike path right next to Salvation Army. So a lot of it was just was deeply, specifically attuned to that place. They ended up changing direction over the years, partly because we didn't get the access to the public land we were hoping for. And so the nursery kind of became the thing that made the most sense to us to revolve around. When the opportunity came to purchase this place a few years ago, we did that and are looking to turn it into part of a land trust, kind of a collectively owned practice of stewardship where Kristen and I aren't the ones that actually hold the deed. It's held by a number of people and can't ever be sold against. It's protected. So that's kind of what we're moving towards with our spotty.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Did you kind of create that model yourself it just sort of evolved out of going for different goals
1: yeah i think it's kind of a i wouldn't say we created it we're we're kind of figuring out how we adapt those models to our spot but there's so many great precedents even you know very ancient practices of the commons in so many cultures including in ancestral european traditions of lands it's a very complicated and complex kind of stuff, but just like people had access to the basic sustenance and sources of life through very well regulated and communally decided practices for how to harvest and take care of a place. And so we're learning from that. And I think a land trust, is kind of a modern attempt to recreate some of that. We've learned a lot from a group called Agrarian Trust that is really focused on decommodifying farmland so that it's actually affordable and accessible to people, to steward. And so those are some of the models that we're learning from and talking with our neighbors here. We live at the foot of uh, Massanutten Mountain, which comes down the middle of Shenandoah Valley. And so talking to our neighbors about stitching places together to create a kind of patchwork of land trust that's all protected and can't be sold again and would actually then be affordable for the next generations to use.
2: That is super cool. How'd you end up in Kiesel Town?
1: I moved to the Shenandoah Valley a little over 10 years ago for grad school. I went to a program called the Center for Justice and Peace Building at Eastern Mennonite University a master's in conflict transformation and restorative justice. So apart from farming, I'm also a mediator, facilitate processes for restorative justice, which is a big part of how we think about the forest farm as well. And then help grassroots groups and organizations think through collective and participatory forms of decision-making and ownership processes so that everybody who's affected by a process is a key voice in how things are done. That's a lot of the other stuff that I do along with farming and kind of integrating those things together.
2: And that's what brought you to the Middle East to do your work there?
1: That was kind of like partly what inspired me to get into that sort of stuff. But yeah, going to the Middle East way back, my granddad was an archaeologist. and spent a lot of time there. And then I had ended up working with, through family connections, working as a journalist in the West Bank and also working with Center for Folks with Developmental Disabilities outside of Bethlehem. And so doing a whole lot of different things over many different years and periods of time. But it was so animated and kind of shifted, you know, in the relationship with land tenders and stewards and seeing these ancient olive orchards and mixed herds of sheep and goats that this very, very old practice of silvopasture that a lot of people are getting excited about now. And it's like these folks have been doing that for thousands of years on these gorgeous terraces. And so that was a huge redirection for me and seeing that practical love, not just a like sentiment, but something that was all about nurture and care. And I wanted to know what that looked like for me where I grew up. And what my responsibility to that place was.
0: So this was about 10 years ago when you were overseas or more than that?
1: It was more than that. I've been back a few times, but some of the main stints were back in 2008 and 2009 to 10 and then periodic visits since then. But when I was working as a journalist in nonviolent direct action and then also with this Center for Folks for People with Developmental Disabilities, how long ago would that be now? 14, 15 years now.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) That was when you were 10, right? Yeah, (laughs) So since you were over there observing all this and developing these ideas for yourself and you come back here and you start applying these principles and these values to the land that you found and have established as your place of practice, boy, there's been a lot of growth in these areas and in public awareness of these issues. And you were thinking about and observing and studying restorative justice. I want to hear about how you apply that to the land there that you're on. I'm sure that's a central part of your work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Part of the experience for me coming into grad school was really desiring, like I have the sense of the things that have gone wrong or the sense of systems and structures that are holding so much harm and violence in place and continuing to land into people. What, What am I gonna do about it? Like how do I participate? And restorative justice became a framework and kind of a way of seeing. It was so useful to me that in many ways, restorative justice starts with some key questions. What's happened here? What actually happened? Let's just be open and curious about what happened. Who was hurt? Whose responsibility is it to make that right? And what are the ways in which they've been hurt in different circumstances? Who all needs to participate in the process to bring healing or accountability to this? what are the root causes of this situation in the community and in the society or the economy? And what is the vision that we desire to kind of keep this from happening in the future is kind of a list of questions. I love that curiosity. And those same questions feel to me that's deeply applicable to land and our relationship to land as they are between humans and that that's always related to each other. It's not actually possible to segregate that out anyway, even though we like to divide. There's ecological or environmental concerns and here's social concerns over here, but they're always the same. So I think that was a huge piece of just asking those questions, coming to a land and saying like, what's happened here? What's growing here? Who's living here? Who's been hurt here? What's the response to that hurt? Whose responsibility is it to try to set things as right as they could possibly be set right? What's the process for doing that? What are the root causes? This landscape doesn't exist in isolation. It's always affected by everything else, economically, ecologically. What would we desire to happen here? What would we like to see growing here that would be beautiful and useful and healthy and meaningful that would maybe prevent that harm from happening in the future. So we kind of see a lot of like restorative justice and restoration ecology feel like kind of twins of one another and not, you know, restorative. There's so a lot of really important valid critiques of restorative justice, one of which is just kind of the name. How do you restore a setting of violence or harm? Where are you trying to get back to? Maybe there was never even a point in that relationship that you could restore something to. And so there's many groups of people who are talking more about transformative justice, which I really, really also find crucial and meaningful. But what I love about restorative justice or restoration ecology is less about like time traveling back and recreating a certain thing, though sometimes that's maybe something we're trying to imitate, but it's more about like restoring an inherent sense of dignity or worth or beauty. It's like honoring the dignity of life. And that's what we're trying to restore in a situation where that's been degraded or polluted or eroded.
0: I'm really excited and inspired by that idea of healing, that separation between the idea of politics and policy and people things, human interaction and operation, and melding that and marrying that with the land. Because I think one could argue that all the problems we see now and all the things that we feel like need healing began at that moment. If there was a moment or a time when humans decided they were separate from the laws of nature, separate from the laws of land and that they didn't apply to us. We could develop our own systems apart from that and the land and nature were on the side over here and we'll just deal with it in another way. So What you're saying, what you've done at Silva Run Pasture Farm is bringing all those ideas together in your experience overseas and as a native of Appalachia, where there's certainly been a lot of violence and harm done on that level of humanity, concurrent with the violence to the land. They've been one in the same in so many areas. How do you practice restorative justice where you are?
1: One way, I think, is through the stories that we tell. Like how can we be as honest as possible about who we are and where we come from and what we're doing and about the lives of the plants that we're tending? We, there are a whole lot of different beautiful and useful plants that we, we think are cross-pollinating food sovereignty and ecological restoration. Food sovereignty is a term that comes out of the global peasant movement, La Via Campesina, which is the largest social movement in the world that represents, in on the estimates, like 250 to 500 million farmers and fisherfolk and pastoralists working on agrarian land reform and and what they've termed as food sovereignty, like a deeper sense than food security. It's not just about making sure you have enough calories, it's also making sure you have the power to determine your food system, to define it, to cultivate it, to benefit from it, to change it, all these kinds of things. So we kind of see it as like cross-pollining those two because we don't have to choose between feeding people and land. We can do both at the same time. And we wanna tell really honest stories about the plants that we grow because these are living beings that we're partnering with. So it's like honoring their inherent dignity, but also the dignity of many of the indigenous cultures that have partnered with these plants for millennia and for centuries and acknowledging where these plants come from and why they're so beautiful and abundant. So it's in storytelling, it's in the practices of how we tend the place, the kind of restorative or reparative approach to landscape. And it's also in how we think about what we do with our wealth or with our money. (laughs) There are many different kinds of wealth, but for us, we're trying to imitate trees as much as we can. What's so amazing about some of these perennial plants, I'm I'm looking out my window and I can see some cherries and walnuts and hazelnuts and plums that are growing out here. When they're photosynthesizing, they're eating sunlight and converting that into starches and sugars that are used to feed the body of the tree but then also redistributed out of their roots to feed the soil some estimates are like up to 25 and maybe 50 percent of the energy that's produced through photosynthesis trees are actually giving away through their roots to feed the microbial community of the underground economy that are protecting the tree offering nutrients preventing disease moving water, some old stories, and then some modern research is suggesting that trees are communicating with each other, maybe through these networks as well. So there's all this going on underground through the gift of sunlight. This is a, a free gift that nobody's paying for, the sun's just there, and all the sunlight's coming through and the trees are converting that, and then they're giving a lot of it away. It's like, well, if we're gonna grow these trees, we gotta get our act together and start imitating what they're doing. And that feels like a practice of restorative justice too, is how do we redistribute what has been unearned advantage and unfairly hoarded to create access and to create fertility in place. And so we're learning from the trees. We're not yet as generous as our trees. We're giving away 10% monetarily of what we make every year out through trusted networks of groups that are tending land and resisting injustice and building alternative economic and community structures, especially led by those who are usually most violently targeted by the systems in place. That we see is kind of the relationship between photosynthesis and reparations. That's just moving the gift of sunlight where it needs to go. And that feels like a big part of what we're trying to do.
0: Amazing.
2: Yeah, that sounds awesome. I love this conversation, too. And I'd love to dip into, if you don't mind, some of the... I understand that you are part of the Speakers Collective from Soul... Fire Farm. That's such an amazing organization doing incredible work. And I just read on your bio that you have co-facilitated Uprooting Racism in the Food System trainings. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What does racism in the food system mean? And what does it look like to uproot that? As much as I don't mean to ask you to like do the whole talk. I know there's a lot there, (laughs) but sort of the Spark Notes version. To, as it fits into our discussion here?
1: Well, that's, yeah, easy question. Thanks for that. Nice. No, just, <laughs> just that piece. Um,
2: yeah, just that.
1: Soulfire kind of came up with these trainings and I, was, I got to be a part of some of the first versions of them and I facilitated some up there and some in DC and then one here that we hosted as well. The land ownership and food system of this country, in particular the United States, has never existed without there being exploited labor and without there being a dominating economy of extracting from some for the benefit of others. And that that has been classified through race, through this made up form of identity over the last several hundred years to simplify human beings and decide who who gets to be taken from and who gets given to. And so looking at like how land ownership is distributed, for instance, where right now 98% of all agricultural land in the United States is owned by white people. That is at a very vast, disproportionate ratio to the number of white people in this country. And that is due to a legacy both of the theft of land from indigenous people, but also to as part of policies on the part of the government, but then also to discriminatory loans on the part of the USDA of the United States Department of Agriculture, where many black farmers and other farmers of color couldn't pay back the loans because there was also not the same access to markets or support for black farmers. And so they would have to default on their loans and their land would be taken away. And even without there being any major government redistribution of land as an act of reparations after the official end of chattel slavery, uh, the 13th amendment of the constitution still allows other forms of slavery. Like if you're convicted of a crime, you're still considered legally a slave in the United States. But after the emancipation proclamation, There was some talk among some circles about, you know, the forty acres and a mule model of redistributing land. And that didn't happen. What ended up happening was actually paying reparations to enslavers, to the slave owners who got a lot of money for their economic loss of their forced labor. And despite that, by 1910 and 1920, black people owned somewhere between like 14 and 20 percent of farmland in the United States, which is about on par with the proportion of the population that Black people comprised, which is kind of incredible. That was happening through organizing, through community-led efforts, through alternative loan options, like instead of going through banks where many Black people weren't allowed to invest, they were doing community lending circles and saving money, saving from extra jobs and then buying land. And then over about a 60-year process, by 1970, Black farmers had lost somewhere between 90 and 95% of all that farmland, partly through racial terrorism of the KKK and other groups of people. So people were fleeing their land for their safety. And that's part of what we call the great migration of uh, people. other people leaving the South and going North and going West. And that was partly happening as fleeing from lynch mobs and from racial terrorist groups, but also from these Discriminatory practices of the USDA. So there's all that. You know, so much more detail of that, but some that violent history, but also the resistance, also those lending models, also like the creative things, like the fact that the whole idea of a CSA, community supported agriculture, where people invest up front into a farmer to support them to have a direct market, that came partly from Booker T. Watley, who was a black farmer and technical advisor at Tuskegee University in Alabama kind of out of a desire to support rural black farmers who didn't have access to markets. It was a creative alternative. So all these really beautiful forms of what are getting called regenerative agriculture now or sustainable agriculture often come from the traditional ecological knowledge of indigenous people and the very practical survival skills of black folks and other people of color to make it work on the land. And so these trainings were partly just about that history and then organizing. Like, we need to know that history. Let's tell the truth and be honest. But then also kind of imagine based on that, what do we organize? How do we change things? What would different systems look like? Yeah, it's some of where those trains were coming from, what they're trying to do.
2: That's awesome. Thank you for that. That's very helpful and succinct to really put it in context. So I guess a follow-up question to that would be, what is the sort of where do we go from here? What's it? What does that look like now? You know, we literally just asked someone in an an interview yesterday, an amazing black farmer here in DC, we were like, what do we do about this? What do we do about the fact that only rich white people can afford your CSA? And she's like, that's not really like my problem to solve. Like I'm just a farmer. Right. (laughs) We were like, (laughs) so yeah. And I love what you were saying before about like, Whose responsibility is it and where does that fall and who gets to talk about it and who gets to think about it and who has to do something. So I'm just interested in your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, man. Another easy question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I look to so many different groups both throughout history and now for for inspiration and pathways forward whether that's like program like your steps that we do or just the kind of beautiful articulation of a vision and imagination and we could do things differently i kind of geek out on like all these stories and examples because that's part of what sustains me. <laughs> There's a abolitionist organizer and writer named Mariam Kaba who says that hope is a discipline. Hope isn't just a feeling, it's a discipline. And actually part of the discipline for me to stay hopeful is to seek out these voices and learn from them. You know, Soulfire Farm is one example, has policy proposals that they're working on with other people. There are many indigenous organizations led groups that also have proposals, especially the land back movement that's happening right now. Those are the groups that I look to and learn from as like, we need different scales of change. As an individual where I'm never actually operating alone, I'm always in relationship with others. What can I do within my sphere of influence given the power and leverage and access that I have? But then what happens when I network up with other groups to change at a different scale and kind of seeing those different fractals of change feels really crucial to me. So I don't know that I would have like, here's my 10 point plan personally for how we do it all. That would feel a little assuming on my part, but I think learning from others and then practicing like here in this place in Kiesel in the Shenandoah Valley and radiating out. What could we do? And then now I'm connecting with other people who are trying to do the same thing. And then others who are looking at the whole grid of like how policy is done, how land ownership is done, that we can change land ownership, for instance, through organizing education, but we also have to have policy changes to meet that. And so learning from those groups that are doing both feel really crucial to me.
2: Yeah. It's sort of like we each kind of had to find our own way in because we each bring different experiences and levels of knowledge and all of that. And so that's why it's a hard question to answer because it's almost it's different for everyone, the sort of plan of attack, if you will, how we're going to get to it.
1: We have different passions and different skills and different aptitudes. And like, I think every piece of that is needed in the fight for life in all of its forms. That's a quote from the black liberation theologian, James Cone, who had this beautiful essay called Whose Earth Is It Anyway? Where he talks about this tendency to segregate out the fight for earth and the fight for humans. And he's making really clear, it's like the logic that has led to the destruction of earth is the exact same logic that has led to colonization and genocide and slavery. It's the same one, and it gets played out in different ways. And instead of segregating out the fight for life in these different forms that you can fight for environmental health all you want, but if you're not incorporating in it a sustained and disciplined critique of white supremacy or colonization, understanding how those are related, then you're practicing a form of racism. And on the flip side, if you're- fighting, you know, an anti racist struggle, resisting all these net policies and structures that uphold this supremacy of one group over another without connecting that to the need for all of us to be fed by the earth and to sustain other living creatures, then it's an anti ecological approach. And what we need to do is integrate them into the fight for life in all of its forms. I just, I love that phrase. It's been really helpful for me.
0: It's like the land is a metaphor The land and how it operates and how it has evolved with its own sense of balance and equity and justice for living things. The earth is a metaphor to the direction we want to go. I really like the way you bring into the discussion the need, the necessity for imagination, because we don't have a framework for how to fix all this. But we don't have it in modern times. We don't have it in our politics. We don't have it in our system of government, a way to fix all these things before it's too late. You know, those things are moving very, very slowly. In this type of work, we understand the the value of imagination because when, when we imagine things and envision things and we're passionate about them, then they begin to show up. So I have a couple of things to say, not necessarily in order, but first of all, have you heard of Acres of Ancestry?
1: Yeah, I have.
0: Okay. So you know about them. I just want to make sure. Have you heard of a book called The History of the World and Seven Cheap Things? You know that book? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh.
1: So I teach an undergrad class called Environment and Society and I use sections from that book. It's so good. She brings it, it up
2: almost it just, every interview that we have. Yay. I'm <laughs> well, so
1: glad to hear that. So good. Well, not
0: almost every, but I do bring it up very frequently. You should I bring talk it up as that. much as you want.
1: That's so good. Yeah. You know,
0: if you want to understand how we got here, yeah. it's just it's, it's a good, accessible outline of here's what happened, folks. Absolutely. <laughs> and really
2: quickly, Mom and Jonathan, for someone who's listening who might not have heard, the other times mom mentioned it. What are the seven cheap things? Just, it's always interesting to go over them.
0: No, let him read it because I get messed up when I try to recite them. I get too excited. Yeah,
1: no, <laughs> they, they unroll together in such good ways. Nature, money, work, care, food, energy and lives that these are the seven cheap things that have made our world and will shape its future you know for them like they're starting with this arbitrary division kind of in the 16th century in europe between nature and society where those words were given a different organizing power for their natural things that are not human in their society and dividing people into categories based on that the european elites were the the social people and then everybody else women people of color indigenous people are all Natural and therefore more debased, and I think that's part of you know what we're naming or what James Cone is talking about is a lot of violence and oppression and extraction comes from a form of human supremacy against the rest of life, against the rest of Earth. That tendency towards categorizing or classifying who is better or superior starts to then splinter out all these views of humans, whether that's through gender or race or and then class structures of who has more wealth. You know, like, but that, a lot of that is rooted in the. Tendency of some humans throughout history to view humanity as the superior creature on this planet.
0: (laughs) Yes. Like at some point, we decided the rules of nature didn't apply to us. And I got my head around that concept when I read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. I don't know if you've read that one. So that's also another sort of a more storytelling way of understanding, you know, kind of how we got here. But in the history of the world and seven cheap things, I think one of the most staggering realizations of that. to me is that early on, when these things were established, women were designated to the realm of nature and nature had already been debased. So the very creative segment of humanity that propagates the human race was shoved over there. And that was a cheap thing. And so we see that now and, you know, how we don't value childcare, We don't value education. You know, women are always fighting for fair wages and all this like very, very deep in the, the human psyche that the role of women belongs to a category that we don't value. That's,
1: that's the, a huge little the, thing. It's, Thank it's, you for saying yeah. that, man. Yeah. That's <laughs> like the heart of so much. Yeah. yeah.
0: I want to circle back around to Silver Run Forest Farm. You speak of your nursery as a reflection of social change, and you also talk about letting the plants tell their story. So I wonder if you could tell us some stories that sort of answer the question of how the nursery is a reflection of social change or just tell stories. It's okay, whatever.
1: I love that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mary. I get very pun based when I start talking about trees. So forgive me, everybody. <laughs> everything morphs into everything else. So it's hard to avoid it. But I think. We're still growing into it, into this vision of social change and what that could look like. But I think something about the image of a nursery where we're propagating power, we're propagating fertility to give away. Like it's the whole point is for it not to stay where it is. It's for it to move and recirculate. Is a really kind of exciting vision of social change to me that we're we're preserving old varieties of stuff, but we're also cross pollinating and experimenting with new ones. You know, we're planting from seed. That's a new variety that's coming up, that's been created through the cross-pollination of flowers. Or if we're taking cuttings, cutting a first-year growth off of a bush or a tree and sticking it in the ground, we just copied the information, the body of that tree, because we want to preserve that, because we think it's amazing. And so a place of like deep fertility where we're building the soil, we're building the memory, we're building the wealth of soil in one place by propagating all these different beings that are then going to spread out and do their good work elsewhere. It kind of feels to me like a model of social change that fits a little bit closer to how I think social change happens. So we don't just change everything at one time. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere. So how do we focus? in a way that also spreads it out and connects with other things that are happening. So we're really excited about seeing our nursery and then connecting with others as hubs, as seed banks, as repositories or way stations along the way that are all connected kind of through the radical underground where we're building up what we need in place to just move. It feels really exciting and a vision that like gives us something actually very proactive to do that isn't just narrowed. It's not like we're just saying this is what's important right here in front of us. It's like we're doing this so that it can circulate and spread
0: yes you spoke of it in terms of a pun i, I think it's a, a huge metaphors <laughs> and metaphors are a really valuable i think of communicating because uh, metaphors speak to our un- unconscious more i think than just like saying maybe facts or
1: and our kinship too like yeah i think our subconscious using but our kinship with other life like metaphor helps us translate that difference and like actually i have a lot in common with these plants and metaphors help me access that relationship
0: Absolutely. And to heal that division, that separation of humans and the rest of the living world, you know, that we've all been like just sort of operating in for how many thousands of years. And so here we are wondering, wow, what do we do now? But do you have any specific stories about a plant or a tree or something? I don't know, just, and if if you do, you do or don't, but if you do, please share.
1: Oh yeah. There's so many. (laughs) If folks are interested you know, our nursery website or nursery page, Each plant is full with pretty vivid description of our plants. We're trying to tell these stories as meaningfully and beautifully as possible about who they are and where they come from and who has cared for them. The one that's kind of springing in my mind right now is just one that I've loved getting to know is honey locust on this tree. Such a beautiful, powerful tree that a lot of farmers especially get nervous about because it spreads to the roots, so it suckers. And it typically has pretty massive thorns like there were it used to be used for nails. So for people's feet and tractor tires, folks get pretty nervous about it. But the honey locust is so named partly because it has these very long pods, kind of like bean pods that have maybe a dozen, between six and a dozen seeds sometimes, but this kind of green goo, it? it's a sugar source, it's a sweetener. And honey locust, kind of its evolved ecological niche is upland, kind of rocky sandy ridges and slopes but where it's often found particularly in Appalachia now is in lowland wet grain lush riparian zones very different from its evolved niche and there was an ecologist I'm blanking on his name we have this all on the website but he noted that anywhere he found a planting or a grove of honey locusts, he was within stone's throw of an archaeological site of a Cherokee village in North Carolina. And he started wondering, he's like, there's definitely a connection here. There's certainly a connection here. And so he got permission from the Eastern Band of Cherokee, from the Eastern nation in North Carolina to work on tribal land. He got permission from the National Forest to do all these studies. And he found this exact relationship between archaeological sites of historic Cherokee villages, and honey locust groves. And what he realized is that honey locust is now growing outside of its evolved niche because of the partnership the Cherokee people have had with honey locust, where they were growing and propagating this tree intentionally as a sugar source, where they could dry out and store the, the pods and the sweetener as a form of sugar. That's why there were so many in the lowlands, because that's where villages would be. And now honey locust is more likely to grow in those places as a cultivation legacy of the partnership that these people that the Cherokee have had with that tree. And I love stories like that that tell us like how plants move and change and adapt and how brilliant humans have partnered. And it also leads to more honesty. So some of the, the most amazing varieties of honey locust have been bred to have no thorns and pods with upwards of 30% sugar is really amazing so as as a livestock fodder is what people are really interested in honey locusts for building material firewood but then the pods to feed ruminants in particular sheep goats and cows and some of the most famous ones like millwood or some of john hershey this breeder they're the ones often credited with these trees and they, they were involved in them but the millwood honey locust was one that was found on a farm in junaluska north carolina on david millwood's farm and then it was propagated it was grafted but that town is right near Cherokee North Carolina and this is a cultivation legacy of the Cherokee so it's not dismissing Hershey or David Millwood in particular it's just noting there's actually a longer history of human beings that partnered with these plants and brought them to the point of being so abundant and fertile and then we just call it wild so these were wild plants Say, well they were very deeply mutually aided by other human beings
0: and we call it wild or a weed. I mean, people around here would call it a weed, and I um, get it out because I know in my own little garden back here, I don't know if it's ex- it's a locust tree. I'm gonna investigate and see if it's a honey locust because I'm very curious now. And as you were talking, I was thinking of John the Baptist in the desert. Didn't he survive on honey and locust? Maybe they were talking about the right.
1: tree. Different stuff, but I do. I love. I love honey locust is native here. But yeah, the honey from wild beehives and the locust of like the insect. But I feel like in the name, like you're saying, it has like a connection of like surviving on what the earth is providing. There's sugar and honey locust that was supporting people that they were intentionally cultivating from plants that were there. Yeah, it's, I love that kind of stuff.
0: So the sugar in the honey locust was actually for the humans. The humans were eating it, too. It wasn't just for their animals, right? No,
1: it was, yeah, it was very much for human use.
0: Gosh, why hasn't someone grasped onto that and... You know, why isn't that a thing?
1: It's a lot of processing to do that. And then part of the basis of the modern industrial economy was the enslaved labor of growing cane sugar. And it was just more efficient, partly because that's where a lot of you know modern bureaucratic technical practices of economics comes from, is like how to make that efficient. And, and that's still true in the Dominican Republic in places, the way sugar is produced in very similar conditions.
0: And if these things are growing wild, then it doesn't require an industry to bring it forth. Does that make any sense?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it kind of blurs that line, I think, between domesticated and wild in a really important way between farming and foraging, where these trees aren't just wild, but they're not domesticated either in the same way. They still have their own will, they're still doing their thing, but humans are intentionally propagating and moving them and planting them strategically. And a different vision than I think in a lot of Regenerative agriculture that comes specifically kind of descended from certain European agricultural traditions where we have really segregated out the lines of forestry and farming or foraging and gathering and gardening. And I think in a lot of traditional ecological knowledge, those lines are pretty blurred.
0: Especially the fact that foraging, nature, wild foods. Are free.
1: Yes, free. Right. <laughs>
0: there's no money to be made in that. And of course, now there's too many people on the earth to forage and you know to sustain all beings. But that's the way we started out. You didn't have to buy your food way back when.
1: <laughs> right. I think some of that too is a, a classist dismissiveness of something being free. It's only worth something if you pay for it. Like is another one of our favorites. We grow pawpaws there that the native tree to the east of what's called the United States. And it's the northernmost range of this kind of tropical family of plants. And that is the largest fruit native to North America. And one of the names of it is poor man's banana or hillbilly mango or things like that, but a, a poor man's fruit. And there are like figs in other parts of the world that have been called that. But it's like trees that are so abundant and prolific that anybody can harvest them, particularly at this time. Indigenous people of Native America and also enslaved African descended people who are making the most use out of pawpaw, or and then poor white workers, was dismissed as a poor man's tree because it was a free fruit that was just readily available in the forest understory. And instead of seeing that as actually the source of wealth, it was dismissed. Hillbilly. Hillbilly. Exactly. Using that dismissively instead of as a tried. <laughs>
0: We ran across the same thing when we were visiting in Tanzania and uh, they had the avocado trees everywhere and the avocados just dropped everywhere. You you couldn't, you, you know, you were practically stepping on them all over
2: the ground. And that's the first time I had avocado on toast for breakfast. This is in like 2004 yeah. or something. <laughs> I remember we were all like, oh, avocado on toast? <laughs> on toast, yeah. And I, I remember being like, actually, this is good and filling. Well, supposedly that's
1: why people can't afford their mortgages now.
2: I know. But it was literally like you would go pick one up off the ground and like put it on bread.
1: Right. And like, oh. about class stuff? Yeah. Oh my they, you know,
2: to them, it was like, oh, they just thought it was like a... Yeah, they kept, they actually were like, it's weird. The Americans really like these. <laughs> like, they were yeah. like, I guess we'll put these on toast. It's so
1: good. It's like, you know, make it, make a little off the tourists, yeah. though. That's the way. It's, that's so yeah, good. They, yeah, I mean, the white
0: people really like these avocados. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah exactly. <laughs> what is it with white people? Avocado. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many stories like this that I, this is where I get really excited. I love growing plants, and I love like doing the practical worked up farming, but I, I just love the stories and the cultural depth and texture and myth and ceremony around like, that's really what gets me kind of amped up about it. And then it makes me want to grow more trees is the fact that Michael Twitty is a culinary historian who has written so much, yeah, wrote a book called The Cooking Gene, and he has done amazing cooking demonstrations of recreating culinary traditions of enslaved and free black people in the South cooking in the style with the foods. And he's kind of noted that a lot of pawpaw and persimmon groves come up around the ruins of the quarters of enslaved people on plantations in the South because people were harvesting pawpaws and persimmons and using them as bait to trap raccoons or skunk or groundhogs to get extra meat, to get more protein in their diets, and then to eat the fruit, and then the seeds would get scattered and they'd come up around these places. And so some archeologists have used groves of pawpaws and persimmons on old plantations to mark where the enslaved quarters would have been once they had been removed and and covered over. So using, I mean, kind of a detective style, like learning from the growth of the trees where we grew pecans one year, we're still trying to find a good seed source around here for pecans, but I was reading a book about, some detail about pecans and it said that this nut became really big and kind of became an agricultural enterprise in the 19th century in Louisiana. And I was all upset said about it. I was like, there's way more detail to the story than an agricultural industry starting in Louisiana in the 19th century. And so as I read more about it, I found research about an enslaved gardener named Antoine. I didn't like uncover this primary source, tons of people doing research about this. And the only information we have about him is from his enslaver's notes that he was the most skilled grafter around. And so he grafted the eight or nine varieties of pecans that became the staple, the very foundation of the pecan industry in the South. He's the reason why because of his skill and his knowledge and that some of these famous white nursery people may have learned from people who learned from Antoine, John Hershey and some of these other people. And it's just one of those stories that's a, that's not talked about. It's incredible. It's an incredible story.
0: Yeah, it's part of the whole truth. And. That reminds me of the whole thing about indigo. You know, indigo was brought by the African slaves. Absolutely. It made all these people in South Carolina incredibly rich. And it's actually credited to
2: this white woman. Right. Yes, she gets the credit. Yeah. So it's amazing that she's a woman. So we were excited for so many years, like, oh, this woman. But guess who taught her? Yeah.
0: She was the plantation owner that got the slaves to do all this stuff. And then she made this incredible industry out of it. You know, so anyway, one more thing, unless you feel like you've
2: already said it, I would love to get you talking about the name Silver Run Forest Farm and a little bit about the mission and the farm and what you do. And also I meant to ask you way earlier and we haven't even touched on it, the like folk school part of it. So maybe just take a chance to like introduce Silver Run Forest
1: Farm, and then we'll wrap up. Cool, that sounds great. I mentioned this piece earlier, but Silver Run Forest Farm is a riparian nursery and folk school rooted in love and living soil. And for us, those roots, we think about them sprouting out in three key ways. It's agroforestry, watershed health, and restorative justice. Agroforestry that we see as just farming in the image of the forest is tending trees for the benefit of food and medicine and all the different gifts that they can offer to humans. Watershed health we see as a way of tending a place that's defined way more by the shape of land and the flow of water than by capitalist real estate values and southern colonial property lines. And restorative justice as a way of tending to the effects of harm and injustice through accountability as a kind of gift. And by you know, restoring the inherent dignity of life through how we're seeing our relationship to a place and the people. So all that's kind of a form of tending. We just like the kind of like gentle, nurturing sense of being tenders. The main way that that looks for us is as a nursery. We're an agroforestry nursery that we propagate thousands and thousands of trees and other plants every year that are beautiful and useful in so many different ways that are cross-pollinating food sovereignty and ecological restoration, as I said, because we just don't have to choose between feeding the earth and feeding humans. There's so many different plants that we grow and that we offer. And then the folk school, trying to learn what we need to know to be who we need to be for this time of the world through crafts, through skill, through stories, through the kind of a framing called popular education, not like popular in the sense of celebrity that's the most known, but popular as education of the people and for the people. And so a lot of what that's looked like is actually just meaningful conversations while people work with us. Folks come and hang out and help us in the nursery, or we make a lot of chestnut and acorn flour. So while we're, we're harvesting and processing flour, which is another of our visions to kind of have like a community nut depot, similar to olive oil presses in the Mediterranean, the Middle East. And so just while people work with us, we have really meaningful conversations about our lives and what we want to be and how we what we want to do. And that's also looked like specific workshops. We've done propagation workshops, particularly like Propagate Power, where we make the connection between propagating plants and propagating liberating forms of power through organizing and through community economies, what we can learn from plants and how to do that. We've done pruning and grafting workshops. We've got two grafting or pruning workshops coming up with different groups. And then we host people who have so much knowledge and skill and kind of a beautiful sense of teaching. We're really intentional about who we invite in, but we've hosted others to teach workshops. We've done silvopasture trainings. In March, we're going to have a coppice agroforestry workshop with Mark Krawcheck who just wrote the book, Coppice Agroforestry. But coppicing is one of these incredible ancient (coughs) cultural practices of tending to trees from all over the world, but there's so much knowledge about it in Europe and in England in particular, but cutting trees to the ground to a stump or a stool and allowing the tree to do what it wants to do, which is re-sprout and multiple stems. And then on different cycles of rotation, maybe five years, 10 years, or 50 years, depending on the size of the tree you want to get, then you harvest again and then let it regrow. And you can theoretically keep the same tree alive indefinitely by sustainably harvesting usable material while keeping that tree alive. And so we're gonna host a training on that as well. So there's so many different things we've envisioned doing, I feel like we're still growing into that quite a bit, but but in the nursery, our vision overall is to farm like the forest, to farm in the image of the forest and to remediate the toxins that pollute our souls and our society and our soil, whether that's chemical leaching in our waterways or white supremacy and the capitalism and colonialism that it's feeding, that we see all those as related to one another. And so more remediating, I think, than uprooting. We're trying to learn from the trees to suck out these toxins so we can actually be who we who we are and who we need to be. The trees are showing us how to do that, teaching us the economic structure, teaching us how to share, how to grow. You know, looking at trees, they're very multifunctional beings. They're doing all these different things just by being themselves instead of multitasking, which would be like doing all these unrelated things and then stressing out about it. But just by being themselves, there's all these incredible cascading, multitudinous gifts that come from them. And could we be like that a little bit economically, agriculturally, culturally? We're learning from them in that way, and then you know, in the sense of being as generous, both redistributing money, but also giving away as many trees as we can. We, we give away thousands of trees every year in partnership with different land trusts, nature preserves, gardens, nurseries, and in particular, groups of people kind of in the language of the Northeast Farmers of Color Network, folks who know that regeneration and restoration depends on reparation and rematriation, that these are deeply co-created realities. So we have worked to support indigenous land back efforts through trees or black led farming efforts and moving trees. We've kind of jokingly called that our own version of a CSA, but instead of a community supported agriculture, it's a community solidarity agroforestry. I love that. (laughs) We have ways for people to support that either as one time gift or as monthly recurring donations on our website where we'll take people's carbon cash siphon to us as a form of mycelial mutual aid and we'll turn that money into free trees to give away to other people based on the trusting relationship that we have with folks adrian marie brown is an amazing writer and facilitator who talks about moving at the speed of trust and we're trying to grow trust by growing trees they feel like a similar speed which can be fast sometimes and really slow other times and so it's kind of based on the relationships that we have and trees are facilitating some radical underground economic partnerships with other people. And there are ways for listeners or others, if you know, you can buy trees from us, or if you don't need trees, or if you just wanna pay for people to have trees, you can move money our way and we will give away as many trees as we can. It's not dependent on the amount of money that comes in. We're gonna give away whatever we can and we'll still redistribute 10% of any money that comes to us. So every chance we get, we're trying to siphon off money and plants the way ecological systems would.
2: That's awesome. Yes. So happy to know about y'all and to spread the news on the good dirt. We have a couple more questions. These are things we always ask our guests. The first one is we talk a lot about slow living on the podcast. So just wondering what slow living means to you.
1: I think for me, what's coming to mind is more seasonal living, that there are slow seasons or even slow times of the day, but then faster, quicker paces depending on need and timing. I think it's kind of like, yeah, an adaptive sense of time not allowing my sense of time to be fully dependent on market calendars (laughs) or the clock (laughs) or the clock absolutely
2: (laughs) which is made up
1: which is totally made up and very recent (laughs) and the lunar and solar sense of times being much more hospitable and expansive that allows for both fast and slow depending on the need and i think that You know what I was just saying about moving at the speed of trust. That Adrian Marie Brown says that is not always slow, but it's intuitive and it's intentional. I think that's that's a lot of how I think about a sense of slow living.
0: Very cool. Oh, that's beautiful. That's great. Thank you. Yes, love
2: Snaps.
1: Naps. I also didn't say where the name came from. Can I do that real quick? The name. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Silver and Forest Farm is kind of a confluence of several streams of thought, really. We were originally named Blacks Run Forest Farm we were in Harrisonburg because we were right along Blacks Run, this creek that flows for about 11 miles north through the city of Harrisonburg and then south. And it's all part of the South Fork of the Shenandoah watershed. And it was done very intentionally to honor that stream that has often been pretty beat up and degraded and like pull in a sense of care and abundance around that creek. But then when we moved out here, rurally, we still take care of things in town as well, but when we moved our site rurally, we also wanted to include Cub Run, which is the creek we're along now, in our name. And so we wanted a, a slightly bigger watershed name. But we also were realizing as we became a little bit more nationally known, as more people were finding us and, and knew who we were, some people were getting either confused or really excited by Blackstone Forest Farm and then finding it was several white people doing it. <laughs> because they didn't have the local watershed geography. They didn't know the place. And so that felt like a really appropriate name shift. So it was a little bit clearer geographically and racially. So Silver Run actually came out of a conversation with a friend. I was noting that one possible origin of the word Shenandoah, there's still not very clear etymology that I can find. But one possible meaning is from a word in Iroquoian languages, I believe, that means silver waters. I love what the image is doing in my mind when I think about that Of just moonlit creeks and shaded streams and, and pools and all lined by the, you know, the banks of riparian buffer of all the wealth of fruits and nuts. And so we love that, but then wanting to bring in these ephemeral, these seasonal runs, these creeks of Blacks running and Tub runs. So Silver Run is kind of a made up name, place name to have a broader sense of our relationship to Shenandoah and all the waterways here. And forest farm is a way of Department of Agriculture defines forest farm a certain way. But for us, it's more of bringing in the relationship of the forest and the farm, the relationship of human culture and the relationship with the rest of life in the forest. And so it's a way of integrating those things together.
0: Awesome, Thank you. Here's a question we ask all of our guests. So what does the good dirt mean to you literally or metaphorically or any, any way you want to answer that?
1: we were talking about that blurred line between the literal and the metaphorical. I don't don't like that, but Mm -hmm. my mind went to the, you know, the saying of like digging up dirt on someone, which is always, you know, kind of a negative thing, but like, let's dig up more good dirt on people.
2: Yeah. It would Ah. be such a pleasant
1: twist, you know, and like all dirt is good dirt depending on what we're expecting from it or what we want it to be doing. And I think, you know, the dirt in our nursery is the result of all this decay and revival that's happening among the microorganisms and nutrients and bodies of plants that we're part of facilitating and helping make something really abundant in that way. And I think good dirt feeds and is fed by everything that we do. So I, just, I want to be digging up more good dirt on people, seeing that as a very generous thing to do.
0: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I
2: love that so much. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been amazing. I'm so excited to learn about you and your work. And I can't wait to follow along. And if you haven't said it already, where can people find you and follow you?
1: Well, thanks to you all for having me. It's so fun and meaningful to talk with you all and play around with the language a little bit and see if we can keep finding language that fits what we're doing more. But yeah. not speak it up too much, but also not downplay, like find that honest language. So yeah, I really appreciate that. If folks want to find us, we're at www.silverrunforestfarm.org. You can find library on there of all these different resources. Some of the articles or books that we were talking about that came up are on there. We try to offer a lot of things. We, we even have a document about land trust and commons that I put together over the last couple of years as a resource for people. We have... Info about our folk school, of course, all the stuff about the nursery, about what we're doing, and then all the plants and then ways to purchase. So if you're looking for plants, if you want to grow stuff where you are, you can buy plants from us, or you can also support our CSA so we can give away trees to more people. And we're on Instagram and Facebook as well, though very sporadically.
0: I yeah. can't wait to come down there. And is it open? Is the nursery open to people to come in and like shop
1: by appointment? Since it's our home, but but we would love for y'all to come down and everything we grow is bare root, so it's all in the ground and kind of raised garden bed style growing. And then we only move trees twice a year. Coming up soon, kind of during the spring when the weather's still cool, but the soil's thawed and the, not all the plants have woken up yet. And then in the fall, after the first heavy frost, these days, it's usually around November 1st. And so we'll lift everything out of the ground, shake the soil off, bundle them up in moist sawdust and packages that we dumpster dive and get from different places. And then we ship them around the country or have available for local pickups.
0: Very cool. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks so much for a fantastic conversation. I've just got so many ideas and things to look up and books to read now.
1: Yeah, same. (laughs) Thank you all. We appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show
0: notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at Farmer.
2: That's Farmer, Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.